I'm Ece Özdemiroğlu. I'm Sabina Apet. And I'm Jill Duggan. Welcome to season two of Join the Dots. We've spent our careers giving advice on the environment and learned that choices are never straightforward. But working through the complexity is rewarding. Here in each episode, we explore the issues surrounding an everyday choice to help you decide what's best for your health, wallet and our planet. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook. This is epilogued to our daily updates from COP26. It's 17th of November 2021. Jill, Sabina and I finally met up online to do a COP debrief. Good evening, Jill. Good evening, Sabina. Good evening. That sounded like Eurovision calling, didn't it? (laughs) Okay. (laughs) So before we started recording, Sabina was already ready with her questions and Jill and I were reminiscing about how tired we, not reminiscing actually, how tired we still are. Um, But yeah, over to you, Sabina. No, thanks. I mean, Edjay and I, Jill, talked a little bit during COP but we didn't really get a chance to meet up with you. And what I was mentioning to Edge is from people that really aren't involved in this, it's hard for them to really understand what people do and why they're there and why this isn't just yet another big boondoggle. So Edge explained a little to us about her role, but you've played an entirely different one. Yeah, well, I, I was there in my role as Exec Director for Environmental Defence Fund Europe, but I've been at lots of COPs in lots of different roles, including uh, for UK government, European Commission, and other NGO roles that I've had as well. And I suppose the question that everybody asks, and I ask myself all the time as well, is there's the negotiations and then there's the circus round it, and there's no question but that I was part of the circus this time. Is it an important role to be part of the circus? And the way I maybe justify it, but I think is important, is that if it was just negotiations, there wouldn't be any heads of government. There wouldn't be many press there. And the pressure of all that attention is one of the things that helps drive both the top-down ambition and the bottom-up action. And that's what we need to do if we want to avoid the worst of climate change. So for that reason, although it's painful and often feels hypocritical to see people flying around the world to get their voice heard and to show people what they're doing to fight climate change, I think it is really important. Yeah, that's a, that's a really good point. So what were you doing day to day? Were you in meetings? Were you advising people? Were you demonstrating? No, well, I wasn't demonstrating. So <laughs> I did a couple of speaking engagements in what are, you know, side events and all conferences have side events. So you have your main events and then you have various meetings to discuss the issues around that. So I was in presenting in discussions on um, deforestation and reforestation and on carbon markets, amongst other things. I did some press interviews for talk radio and in, actually for a Turkish Um, TV station as well. So there's some of that going on, which is getting out the messages from COP 
and relaying and assessing what is important that happens and trying to amplify that and also trying to channel some of the sense of frustration. But I think like Eche, I found being in a conference after two years of not seeing that many people really quite overwhelming. And it was on the inside, Eche. It was just like every other cop that I've ever been to. The stalls look pretty much the same. It's, mm. it's very, very similar. The queues for food, the lack of seating, the balancing hot soup, scotch broth, on your knees, on the floor, because there's not enough facilities, is something that is reminiscent of many other cops. So many of them have been in sunshine as well, which has made those difficulties a little more bearable. So I found the number of people this year overwhelming. Um, but I think that was more about the level of interest in this cop and the fact that, you know, because of pandemic, we just aren't used to so many people. And obviously, one of the things we had to do to get into the blue zone every day was to do a lateral flow test, an antigen test every day. And one of the reasons I left a little early, I left two days earlier than I was going to, was because every day I got that negative antigen test. But I thought my risk of getting a positive test and getting stuck in a miserable hotel room in Glasgow <laughs> increased daily. So it did feel a bit like Russian roulette doing mm -hmm. that antigen test daily. And really, you know, I didn't want to push my luck. Uh, one of the things that's really interesting and exciting is I think the circus does encourage some nations to go a little bit further. That's not in their ambition in the negotiations. That is settled before they turn up. And there's not a lot of wriggle room mm. about what they're going to do. But I think in some of the language for the final communique, I mean, apparently that's the first time coal has ever yes. been mentioned in the final communique. So although we might think, mm, you know, the wording could have been stronger, the fact that after 26 COPs, the word coal has finally got in there is mm. significant. I think the demonstrations outside, the frustration that people show is really important in pushing the urgency issue. And of course, countries weren't meant to come back after COP26 with their updated commitments for another five years, but they've now pledged to come back mm. next year in Egypt. So the urgency message is getting through. I think the pledges on methane, which my organisation, Environmental Defence Fund, has been pushing the mm. impact of methane for 11 years. So the fact that methane is a gas that has a, a very high global warming potential for a short period. So it's estimated, and I heard lots and lots of different figures for this, but I think my colleagues estimate it to be responsible for about 25% of the warming that we're experiencing at the moment. So if you think about the floods and the fires that we've been having, the fact that there are simple and easy things, if you're looking at oil and gas methane, and then slightly more difficult things, if you're looking at methane from agriculture or from waste, there are things that we can be doing now that can have a dramatic impact. And some of those actually would save us money as well as helping us address this problem. So I think that was a really interesting pledge, was over 100 countries signed up to reduce global methane emissions by 30% by 2030. Can you explain a little for, to our listeners on why methane is important and how it's different than CO2? Well, you can probably explain that better than me, Sabina, actually. <laughs> so I, I know, you know, CO2 builds up in the atmosphere, lasts for hundreds of years. It's the main greenhouse gas, which is why we need to address it in, if we're going to tackle climate change. Methane has a very powerful greenhouse or warming effect, but it's relatively short-lived. So I think 
um, you will know the figures far better than I, but because it's got this very powerful short-lived effect, it's actually impacting on what we're experiencing mm. at the moment. And it's estimated that we've got warming of 1.1 degrees Celsius at the moment. And many people believe around 25% of that warming is actually due to methane emissions that are currently being emitted. So if we can tackle those, we can give it by ourselves a bit more time to tackle the CO2 emissions. Mm. Yeah, that, that, I think that's a really important thing. And that's something that most people haven't heard about till recently. So it's really nice that your organization is pushing these issues. Mm. I mean, as a geochemist, my concern with methane has often been methane stored in sediments and soils and things. And as we warm the planet, those reserves that have been stored in various systems become less stable. So there, there are feedback loops we really want to avoid yeah. as much as we can. So methane that's stored re is released Yes, indeed. Why is why is it taking so long to get to methane? When we knew, like the, it's not new, is it? We we knew methane was had a higher. There's been there's yeah. always been the six greenhouse gases, and they are part of the you know, Kyoto mm -hmm. Protocol back in the 1990s. But I think because CO2 was by far the biggest, most important one of those, and the ones mm. that we have to tackle, most of the initial focus has been mm -hmm. on CO2 and reducing CO2 emissions as quickly as possible. Yeah. I think sometimes you have to get people to focus on one problem mm -hmm. at a time. And if you introduce too many at once, it's really hard not to mm -hmm. overwhelm action. But mm -hmm. now, as Jill pointed out, it's important to start moving the bar on that mm -hmm. issue. There is a delicate balance, though, isn't there? I mean, it's kind of we discussed this in the podcast, various choice episodes as well, that if you focus on just one thing, you could end up creating new problems or actually missing the boat. The reason I say that, that in one of the events I went to, someone from the audience said, um, can we not just tackle with the climate crisis? That's more urgent, isn't it? We don't need to worry about nature and biodiversity yet. I was <laughs> like, uh, no. Um, <laughs> I think that, but, that might have been a bit of a patronizing no, but I went, no. <laughs> Naughty step now? Um, no, you have to think about both because actually if you don't think about nature and climate change risks on your in mitigation investments, you might fail mitigation. And that's, a risk I, we're looking yeah, at. That, that's an argument I've come across before. I can remember mm. one of my previous incarnations when I led a business group and wanted to look at other issues and and many of the members would say, but we signed up to tackle climate change. We're not interested in sector economy or biodiversity, et cetera. So I think precisely it's about joining the dots and, and helping people understand that, you know, what happens in this part actually impacts on everything else. And we can't look at these things in isolation. Yeah, that's so much of our message always, isn't it? The devil is in the details, but that broad systems thinking makes is difficult for easy public messaging. So understanding how things are connected and how all our little choices propagate across the planet. It is, also, um, I think, reflects how our understanding develops. Some of this is about we've learned as we've been going along and we don't have all the answers straight away. And one of the things that we know is occasionally some of the solutions we come up with create unintended consequences. So I think 
a lot of this is about learning and responding to new information to have the best impact that we can. So, Jill, was there any one thing, being a a COP pro, was there any one thing at this COP that surprised you? I don't think there was anything that surprised me. It's, you know, it's a revisiting of some of that painful sometimes, certainly painful from the outside, wordsmithing of communiques to encompass everybody's uh, concerns. Uh, This is a process by consensus, and that makes it very, very difficult. The sheer kind of exhaustion, the organized chaos of a cop, the queuing, all of those things are both fondly familiar and exasperatingly awful at the same time. I think it's always encouraging to see some of the new things and the new realisations and the, the developments that are moving, making progress and moving arguments and moving what we're doing forward, the bottom-up stuff. And it's also deeply depressing to hear some of the same old arguments rolled out or some you know, uh, misconceived solutions. And I didn't go in the green zone, but in my experience, there's, there's quite often a lot of greenwash going on as well. Um, and in, in all zones, there's a certain amount of greenwash going yeah. on. I think everybody's a bit wiser to it. I think it's not as easy for companies and governments and individuals to get away with that as they have in the past. But nevertheless, it is depressing. Mm. Oh, Jill, you've got cop ennui. But so did you learn anything new? I think there were, there were highlights for me. There were things I thought the methane pledge, not just because I work in an organisation where that's been highlighted, but I think really because it's quite an ambitious target. And it's always good to see countries take on ambitious targets that provide them with a real stretch where they have to do something. Because one of the things that we know, and I've worked in government, is once they do that, then that they are duty bound to try and find ways to achieve that target. And that will move things on. Similarly, the deforestation by 2030, stopping deforestation by 2030, there has been a previous pledge seven years ago to do that. This time it was backed by a lot of money. One thing that surprised and disappointed me was back in 2009 at Copenhagen, the developed world pledged $100 billion a year for the developing world to help tackle climate change. They've missed that target and they've still not met it. And actually, one of my predictions for COP26 was they pull that off at the end and they do that and they haven't. And I think, you know, that is such a breach of trust for the developing world mm. that the developed countries couldn't deliver on that. So that mm. was a disappointing surprise. Mm. But on the other hand, some of the movements have been much more positive. I think it was you, Ed Jay, that talked about, we've talked in various climate conversations here and elsewhere about adaptation, mitigation, even uh, in some venues we talk about geoengineering. This is the first time I heard about an actual acknowledgement that we also have to fund and address irreversible loss. You know, because that's often the unspoken elephant in the room. And I'm not sure I have quite the right language, but it's almost a fourth dimension in the strategies that we need to do going forward for a just transition. I think addressing loss and damage, which has been talked about for a long time. And again, countries have failed to come up with the developing world, particularly those parts of the developing world that have been severely impacted 
by climate change already and yet have not had the opportunity to develop yet and certainly haven't had and are not going to be able to have the opportunity to use cheap fossil fuels to grow their economies. And if you think about what happened this year, I've heard the figures and I'm not certain of them, but I think I've been told that in Germany post-floods, the German government found 30 billion euros to compensate the businesses and the people and the homes that had been damaged and tragically lost. If you then think about that 30 billion, you think about the countries, the small island states that have lost land, lost livelihoods. You think about some of the issues that were being faced, the drought in southern Africa, then it's really difficult to not feel more than sympathy, share the anger of the developing world that they've not yet had settlement or some means of agreeing this. And what they want, and I've heard some very sort of thoughtful responses on what they would like, and it's not always about money, but it's about acknowledgement, it's about not being deprived of choices in the future, that you know we really need to make progress on this if we're going to solve these. We're not going to solve climate change. We're going to minimise the impacts of climate change, but we will still have to deal with climate change. I mean, that is the truth of it. And that means that there are some parts of the world that are going to be catastrophically changed over the next couple of decades. And we're going to have to do something about that. Yeah. How much hope do you have that we will seek a a just transition? I think I'm hopeful. I'm always hopeful, Sabina. You know, if we weren't optimists, albeit cautious or gloomy optimists, then we wouldn't be doing this. We'd have just given up and gone home. So I am hopeful. I'm hopeful that human sense of justice, human ingenuity, human ability to look for the opportunities will provide people with uh, livelihoods and well-being in the future, will bring people out of poverty at the same time as minimising the impact of climate change. And if I didn't believe that, then I probably wouldn't be doing the job mm. I'm doing. Yeah, that's a really good point. No, there is hope that uh, actually the signs of hope from other places as well that I wanted to come in and, uh, and the sort of Hats off to our hosts of COP26 Scotland because Nicola Sturgeon announced on, I think it was 1st of November, the first day of COP, that Scotland would give £1 million investment in helping the world's most vulnerable communities repair and rebuild after climate disasters like floods and wildfire. And this money, although very small in the greater scheme of things, was labelled very clearly for loss and damage. And I think people were saying, yes, Scotland is very small, the amount is very small, but actually the, the symbolism of it is very large. And if there are leaders, there will be followers. And I think Scotland's pledge was, um, or promise, not just pledge, actually, yes, they will do it, definitely, is is really a good sign. And I have seen a number of uh, predominantly European countries have come up with pledges on loss and damage, but, you know, the, the sum total is nowhere near enough, oh, and, yeah. and nor is it shared broadly enough amongst mm. developed countries. And also, I think because of that hundred billion thing, the other thing I wanted to raise, like the the money not being there, I'm not surprised that India wanted a 
softening of the wording in some ways. And and I watched the minister walking away from the negotiation, really resolute and saying, no, we do want to do something about climate change, but we're not going to do it on our own. You're going to have to pay. And in anyone who's ever sat in a negotiation knows that sometimes you have to walk away for a bit to get something that you want. And I think he was not that India doesn't want to phase out coal because they did make a commitment to net zero by 2050 with midterm targets for 2030, but they do want help. So they're keeping a position. I don't know what China's excuse is. Well, I think, I mean, India has said it'll get to net zero by 2070. China has said by by 2060. China will peak their emissions by 2030. Everybody feels that they could do that sooner. Um, India probably could do, but they've got a population 1.3 billion of whom Mm. many, many, many hundreds of millions are living in poverty. So I think any nation that faces those problems is going to need to strike, look for a negotiation Mm. on how to achieve what is going to benefit the whole world. The one thing I would Mm. say is that what I'd really like to see is sort of finance ministers who really understand the climate change problem and the opportunities as well as the costs that it entails and to under- and for finance ministers to understand that giving money to developing countries to tackle climate change or for loss and damage is not giving money away because it's a global problem. If developing countries can take action to avoid further climate change and to avoid fossil fuel use, that benefits us in the UK, it benefits the rest of Europe, it benefits the rest of the developed world. It's an investment for our future as well as for theirs. And I think at the moment we don't have enough finance ministers who really understand the climate problem. They see it as a cost, not as an opportunity. And there's a feeling that they're not looking at this strategically at all. They're looking at it as a very short-term issue where they're trying to maximise the opportunities for their own quite, quite narrow country interests. And that needs to shift if we're going to solve the problem. About 15 years ago, I was going to conferences on environmental security, and they were more worried about terrorist attacks on infrastructure and things like that and environmental effects. And I, I talked about climate change and biodiversity and how we weren't secure in a world that we weren't protecting. Though, I mean, this was nothing new. It wasn't being addressed by these international scientists at a NATO meeting when they were thinking about future security threats. I mean, in the ensuing years, it's very much embraced. Mm -hmm. You know, even if you're not concerned about justice, and you should be, these are all global issues. We can't sit safely Mm -hmm. elsewhere. Mm. I've learned a lot of new things, especially in this climate justice transition, just transition type things. But I found that very few of those discussions really got into the detail and what mm-hmm. it means in practice. It was a lot of politics from all parties, both in green and blue zone and in the streets and in the meetings, but not this kind of pragmatism saying you are not 
making a charitable donation. I mean, not everybody buys the moral argument. We need to be able to make both the moral arguments and the cost effectiveness arguments and the strategic political arguments. You know, we need to be able to talk about all of them. But there seems to be on all sides that if you're making an argument that they're not philosophically comfortable with, you can't have that argument. You can't really talk. You can't bring lots of solutions together. And then it becomes a very kind of samey argument. Usual suspects make the usual arguments and we need to really move. And that's what I read a lot about. Oh, there are 500 fossil fuel lobby representatives. Now, they are there to lobby, you know, like I fell almost into the hydrogen trap and I was like, no, 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 okay, I'm not going to fall into this trap. But we still need to speak to people who work in the fossil fuel industry, right? Because they, they, they have jobs, you know, they employ loads of people and not at all of them at very comfortable executive jobs. If you don't want to use fossil fuels, we need to understand who, how, how can we change those jobs? How can we find new people? That's the just transition. But you need to speak, if you're transitioning from A to B, you need to speak to people at both stops. All stakeholders. Yeah. yeah. I mean, it's said in so many headline reports. I don't think we're communicating well enough that even though some things may cost a lot, and although some things won't, they will bring jobs, that the cost of failure or inaction is astronomically higher. And if we're saying these strategies are not cost effective, we're not scoping the problem, the assessment right. And were there some issues that you thought were interesting to take a deep dive in in the coming months or things you want to chew on or look at issues and what those would mean to us and how we might make choices and decisions in this context. So in this idea of, you know, costs and burdens and opportunities, I think there is a lot of um, baloney talked and we ought to start unpacking that. I'm, I'm not about wearing a hair shirt and having a horrible life. I want everybody to have a nice life while saving the planet And everything I do is about trying to navigate how we make the choices in order to do that. And I think a lot of the interesting things that come out of tackling climate change give the opportunities for for us to have better, to have better air quality, to have better jobs, to have better lives with, you know, um, good family life and, and so forth. There's a lot of opportunities for us and developing countries to make things better. And, and it's all about the choices that we make as we navigate this new world and we try and create something. Mm. So what we are on the, the, the threshold of is trying to create a different world where we use different means to make our lives good. And not just ours, but other people's lives as well. So it is this massive opportunity. And, you know, the whole point about Join the Dots has always been about trying to find the information and unpacking some of the the myths and lies that circulate in order for us all to be able to make those choices more clearly. I'm glad you said that because I think exploring some of these questions and the economics and the finance and all of this is something I I would really like to learn enough to do more rigorously. 
How about you, Ed J? I, I have a more specific list, uh, but maybe we can have a myths um, section in each episode. Going like, you will hear this, but don't believe it. Um, <laughs> so I was trying to um, think of topics that could help us cover both a kind of low carbon ways of doing things and also adapt to existing climate change risks. So there are some topics that I thought, because we, we said we wanted to revisit our heat pumps um, episode, which we did in, I think it was summer of 2019. I'm sure the technology has changed, improved, and prices came down massively since then. There are even new types of technology in there. Um, and of course, the role of hydrogen in home heating or anything else. So we definitely need to revisit that. I know you're nodding. Also, I am really baffled why we have not still banned peat in compost. It's such a simple policy. What are the politics there? What is stopping? I did ask to that question to a DEFRA person in a panel about a month ago, but I didn't make a friend. Internet. Okay, internet. So all, all that talk about flying to conferences, we seem we seem to use internet as if it's totally costless in terms of emissions and environmental impacts, which is not the case. But I don't know enough of the, the emissions and you know data banks and energy use, et cetera, so it'll be really good. And I know that there are different search engines, for example, who claim to be greener than the big one. Then two more drinks. So I have actually opened a can of beer before we started. I don't know whether it was allowed, but it's been a long day. So there are some drinks companies that also claim being low carbon and invest in nature, like invest in natural water things. And the final topic that I have is ethical pensions. Like, can we move our pensions to something? And I found a really exciting speaker about that I met in Glasgow. But anyway, most of these choices are multifaceted. So it's, it's good not to have this entrenched positions in, in choices and, well, and you broaden our thinking, I think. I think that's been one of the delights of doing Join mm. the Dots. It's the things we learn that we don't expect. <laughs> like when we did the hygiene episode and Joy pointed out those social mm. impacts and trade-offs and also then link them back to the environmental footprint again. So always the new perspectives are um, exciting. Yeah. Yeah. If we were finishing the episode with the music, what's the, is that Italian job, which film that there is mutual appreciation society or something? What's that song? It's, um, yeah, don't blow the bloody doors off. It is the Italian job, isn't it? <laughs> Thank you for listening. Thank you to the rest of the team, Neil McCune and Anna Gunn. You can find more information about this and other episodes on our website, jointhedotspodcast.com. And we'd love to hear from you on Instagram, Twitter and Facebook.